and welcome to another episode of Fountain City Sports Media, a podcast made by Kansas City fans for Kansas City fans. My name is Reese, a.k.a. the East Incarnate Bach Lesnar, and I'm here today by myself. Armando is off doing some things that uh, he needs to take care of, so I will be guiding you through this podcast, which I think might be my first solo podcast since I don't know when. Okay, so here's a fun thing. Who can ever go online and figure out when the last time I did a solo podcast was and can comment on it on this week's episode Instagram post will win a prize from Fountain City Sports Media and we will not welch on that marker. So you heard that. First person that lets us know when Reese's last solo cast was on this week's Instagram post will win a special prize. Meanwhile, it's been a while since I've been on here, uh, probably two or three weeks at the very least. I know Hot Take Mondo took the reins last week. The big thing going on is I am currently in the process of moving into a house. And I know people are saying, well, Reese, how long can it take to move into a house? It's not that big of an adventure. You know, you move your stuff, you get settled in. It takes, what, maybe a week? Yes and no. So as Armando has mentioned on this show, we moved into a house. The house has great bones. It's a very nice house. But it needs a lot of updating in a lot of different facets. I mean, for example, like the upstairs living room was Robin's Egg Blue. The kitchen was Robin's Egg Blue. The basement was Honey Mustard Yellow. One of the kids' rooms was, I think, this like shade of lavender purple. So it's like, well, we have to paint basically every wall in this house, which is not that big of a deal. It just takes time. And when you can't paint the rooms, you don't want to put things in the rooms and get settled into the rooms because then you're just going to wind up moving them out again every now and then. So everything right now is basically shuttled into the living room of the house and or that purple bedroom and we're working backwards. We've taken care of the basement. It's now this wonderful shade of pale oak. Thank you, Benjamin Moore. High quality paint. Friend of the podcast. Honestly, would recommend. Kitchen has been repainted pale oak and the master bedroom has been repainted Oh, uh, no, it's been repainted Pale Dove, not to be confused with Dove Wing, which is going to be our trim. So we have Pale Oak, Pale Dove, and Dove Wing. How that was not designed by big paint companies just to get husbands in trouble every time they go to Ace Hardware because their wife sends them on another paint run is beyond me. So see, we were set up to fail. We were set up to fail, but it's not important. The house is getting moved into slowly and subtly. The first room that's actually probably most come together is coincidentally the office I'm in right now, which is the smallest of the three bedrooms, but it feels nice and like home. Uh, it's pretty echoey as you can hear right now. We don't have like basically any rugs or like sound dampening things in here. It's hardwood floor, walls, ceiling, and my desk, but uh, it's nice to have a little bit of a sanctuary in this home. And uh, as you can probably hear, there's trains going by. We moved uh, We moved not too far from a railroad line, which honestly, I like. I like the sound of trains. So that's what's going on here. We got plenty of weekend projects to take care of, but uh, I have a few gripes. I have a few gripes that I want to talk about this week before we get into the meat and potatoes talking Chiefs training camp. So a few of the gripes I want to get into, I think are very important. Number one. I want to talk about e-waste. That's right, electronic waste. Uh, We've gotten to the point that everyone can probably remember this. This is probably beginning 2017, 2018, where USB-C was slowly becoming the desired port for charging, for data transfer. You know, the classic USB type A were being phased out. Those micro USB and mini USBs were obviously getting phased out. 
USB-C was the future. And I remember during that time, I think I had two objects that had USB-C charging cords. I had a pair of Sony headphones, and I had this one other device that, for the life of me, I can't even remember what that was, but the USB-C cord they sent was legit like two inches long. So those are my two USB lifelines. And for about three or four years, I wasn't going to go out and get rid of all my micro USB cords and buy a bunch of USB-C cords. So it was always just like this game of where's Waldo trying to find one of those two USB-C cords whenever my headphones died or whatever that other object was that needed USB-C headphones. So I, being the type A individual I am with my electronics, got a bunch of baggies and put all of my cords in different baggies and labeled them. So I had this big like half gallon hefty bag, Ziploc hefty bag full of just USB mini cords, you know. Those were the standard for Android phones for the longest time. Those were basically the standard for any charging port that had a rechargeable battery that was not an iPhone. I'm I'm sure you can all remember what these were. Now, over time, those were slowly wearing out. I knew which ones were my good USB cords. I I mean, for sure, I'm like, this one's flat. This one's not good. This one has enough cable in it that it can do data transfer. This one's purely charging. I had them essentially, you know, cataloged out. I knew what was good for what. Over time, however, those cords were breaking down one by one. Here we are now, flash forward in 2023, and USB-C has become largely the charging standard in a lot of your devices. I think I even got a cheap pair of Amazon, like $20 wireless earbuds that their proprietary cable was a USB-C. My, how the times have changed. So now we've come full circle to the point where A, my mini USB cords are dying off at a high enough clip, And B, I'm starting to lose them that for the few objects I still have that need mini USB-C cords, or sorry, mini USB cords, I am up a creek without a paddle. My battery is on empty and I don't have a cord. Especially when you're moving, it's very difficult to find. So that is my current rant on e-waste. Keep your cords, catalog your cords. They're very important. Anyone with a PS5 needs to tell me what they charge with my guess is probably USB-C at this juncture. I can't imagine it's still USB uh, mini, but there we go. There we go. That's my e-waste rant for this week. The other big rant I want to go on, uh, this happened actually in the group chat earlier today, which uh, I know some people are like, oh, this isn't a big deal. It's just a gag text. You know, it's a gag text, bro. Take a joke. Take a joke. This will not stand. Uh, This came from a meme account. Uh, Shout out to Middle Class Fancy. They are a great Instagram account. You should definitely follow them. But Middle Class Fancy uh, retweeted three-year Letterman, even though I don't even want to give this guy credit for this tweet because it's so so garbage. It's so garbage. But his tweet reads, best barbecue in the U.S. Number one, Georgia. Number two, South Carolina. Number three, East Tennessee. Probably talk about that Nashville. Number four, North Carolina. Number five, Mississippi. Number six, Alabama. Number seven, Memphis. Number eight, Texas. And not worth ranking, Kansas City. I've been doing a work project for no fewer than probably like 15 of the last 20 hours. I'm very tired. I'm very upset. Stuff like this is meant to be a gag, but this kind of stuff is not funny for anyone. 
This is fake news. This is false information in which is making our proud country worse and worse with one of its purest forms of arts and entertainment. I'm, of course, talking about barbecue. How on this green earth can three-year lettermen post this ranking and not even include Kansas City in the list? And now I say this because Reese is obviously a gag account. Take a joke. Take a joke. And three-year lettermen might be trolling. But the dangerous thing about this tweet is that there seriously are people, particularly in the East Coast and Southeast, that say Kansas City barbecue sucks and that we have nothing but ketchup with a hint of smoke in it for barbecue sauce which could not be farther from the truth. So please allow me to go down this list and tell you what's wrong with all of this barbecue. Number one, Georgia. Georgia simply being number one, it's heresy. It's absolute heresy. I cannot tell you one thing Georgia does well. I know they are in that region of kind of that like apple cider vinegar based sauce. I'm gonna guess pulled pork is probably their thing. Most importantly, Georgia has no business being number one on this list. You want to put Georgia somewhere in the top eight, probably below number five. You know what? Cool. That's your prerogative. But number one, F, instant F tier list. Number two, South Carolina. South Carolina comes from what I was just mentioning, that aforementioned vinegar, red pepper, pulled pork, throwing coleslaw on it, region of barbecue, which again is fine. I have had Carolina-style barbecue before. It's not bad food. It's just not good barbecue, if that makes sense. A pulled pork sandwich with apple cider vinegar brine, maybe a little bit of mustard sauce and some coleslaw on top, that's a tasty sandwich. However, that's nowhere near the epitome of barbecue or even have a chance for top three, maybe even five barbecues in the country. Number three, East Tennessee. You know what? If I was making a barbecue list, East Tennessee probably would be my number three, to be honest. If we're talking Nashville, I'm pretty sure Nashville, Central, Eastern Tennessee. Uh, that is legitimately some of the best barbecue I've had in my life. They have a take on that vinegar sauce, but it has a bit more consistency to it. And they also do some other awesome things like Nashville hot chicken, which I know some people might say isn't barbecue, but it's kind of like in that same vein of specialty meat procuring foods. Uh, I really do like Nashville. I think they have very good barbecue. I got to give props to number three, East Tennessee. Number four, North Carolina. What I just complained about with South Carolina goes for North Carolina as well. They are uh, two sides to the same coin. Not my favorite barbecue. Uh, I think it's, it's very overrated. And anyone that says that style of barbecue is the best obviously has not had Texas or Kansas City style barbecue. Number five, Mississippi. Mississippi. I can tell you the state with a, a bunch of double consonants does not include the two consonants of BB. You can have all the SS, SS, PP, but you can't have all the BB. I tell you what, it's just, it's just facts. Same thing for like going for Georgia. I couldn't tell you one thing like Mississippi does really well. I am sure now, you know, the SEC is known for their great tailgates. You know, what is the world's largest outdoor cocktail party? Super cool. I don't doubt there's delicious food in Tennessee. Homestyle food, soul food, Creole food, all that influence down there. However, that does not make you a top five barbecue location in this country. It's also important to know that grilling things and smoking things is not necessarily the same as barbecue. Barbecue is a distinct style that has distinct parameters, none of which I could tell you about Mississippi. Mississippi, I don't know a fake ID when I see one, but I would know one that is not above the age of 21 
Take your place to the back of the line. Mississippi, you're out of here. Number six, Alabama. Again, I've had fantastic seafood in Alabama. Probably some of the best seafood of my life in Alabama. And again, soul food, Creole. It's fantastic down in that region. Barbecue. Nah, dog. Check out. It's like getting Des Moines area barbecue. It's like, shout out to my Des Moines barbecue joints. You're tasty. You're good. You're at least closer to the Epitone barbecue than Alabama is. But it's good barbecue. Better than a lot of other barbecue in the country, but nowhere near top 10 barbecue. Number seven, Memphis. I would put Memphis at number two on my list for being honest here. Memphis uh, is delicious. They do a lot more dry rub. Uh, they do some fantastic things with their sauces. Again, kind of my experience, there's been a mix of sort of that thicker Kansas City style sauce with a bit of that mustard style sauce. Uh, you get kind of the East Coast and Southeast. I think it's delicious barbecue, and I really would like to go out to Memphis and get more. It's been far too long since I got a chance. Uh, they are the one other barbecue city that I really respect outside of Kansas City. And that's the other big thing here is that you're looking at this list, and we're just going to go ahead to number eight, Texas. All of these lists, minus East Tennessee and Memphis, are representing states. So what I'm hearing is you need an entire contingency of a state to even stack up or try and be in the same breath as the city of Kansas City, where the sauce is the boss, where Sweet Baby Ray's is better than 90% of the stuff on this list, where St. Louis, our barbecue little brother, would still give you the sweep of the barbecue. Texas is good. Don't get me wrong. Texas does brisket better than anybody else. And for that alone, Texas is very important. I think there's also something to be said about the culture of barbecue from where you are. And let me tell you what, Texas and barbecue culture are deeply ingrained in one another. That's a thing. You can't separate the two. So Texas gets bonus points on that. In fact, I think we could spend the time making a Venn diagram or some sort of graded system with multifacets and different categories and eventually find a composite score for where the Epitome barbecue comes from. What I can tell you is Memphis is seven, Texas at eight, both too low. The rest of these southeastern barbecues in this list, way too high. Not worth ranking Kansas City, either an awful troll job or pure ignorance, either of which is not good. So that's my barbecue rant for the day, ladies and gentlemen. <sighs> really makes me want some barbecue. I'll tell you what, it's been a hot second since I've had some. I can't even remember the last time I did have it, to be honest. I think I had Jack Stack catered in, which even then, Jack Stack's better than six of the eight things on this list. Not even close. Not even close. Well, after all that talking, I need to put something delicious in my glass and give you a wonderful, wonderful beer review. And I have just the beer to reflect on what we just talked about. Stay tuned. I'm grabbing a bottle. favorite time of the podcast speaking of which uh it's been a while here's a funny thing in case you've never noticed that go back and listen to the intro of it's been a while and listen to like the intro of black hole sun i'm just talking like the first bar or two anytime one of those come on the hard rock radio station i can't tell what's what for about 10 seconds you can't unhear it now i guarantee go back and listen to it anyway it's everyone's favorite time of the podcast it's this week in craft beer 
the segment of the show where we sit down and review a delicious craft beer for your listening pleasure. Now, as I mentioned, I have a fantastic beer in front of me that I'm excited to review for you today. I've kind of been going back and doing a lot of these macro breweries, uh, national distro beers this year, you may have noticed. Now I'm hitting some things from Great Divide, uh, some stuff from uh, Leinen Kugels, Odell's, all great stuff. But one that I'm excited to have today is one I haven't had since I was in college, probably. And I remember when this thing, you know, was kind of fresh in the region. I don't know how long it's been for, but it was fresh in the Iowa region. And from Deschutes Brewery in Bend, Oregon, I have Mirror Pond Pale Ale. Uh, this is a 5% 40 IBU delicious American Pale Ale. I know this was one of the ones that kind of brought West Coast beers into like the grand scheme of popularity. It's got, from what I remember, a nice hot balance to it, an easy malt profile. At 5%, 40 IBUs, easy to drink more than anything. So I'm excited to share this experience with you all on the podcast today. All right. And just because it's been a while for me reviewing a beer, uh, I'm going to go over the categories we use to review beers on this show. Uh, we have four popular criteria that we use to grade beer on this show. Uh, first one being appearance. Number two being aroma. Number three being flavor. Number four being mouthfeel. This one's going to be a little bit trickier for me to grade. Oh, we grade everything on a scale of one to ten, by the way, if I didn't mention that. Uh, It's going to be tricky for me to grade appearance on this because I am currently holding my mic with one hand and uh, pouring the beer in a pint glass with the other hand, so I'm trying to avoid getting too much head. Again, where's your mic stand, Reese? I don't know, packed away in one of these boxes. My uh, desk is currently a kitchen table. We've converted to a desk, so I have nowhere to put it, even if I did have my mic stand. So, anyway, uh, I'm going to grade myself a decent pour on doing this from a bottle, one-handed, into a pint glass where there's nowhere to hide. Can't even catch the bulb of a tulip, man. So, appearance on this bad boy, this is a beautiful, slightly reddish-amber color. Uh, a lot of carbonation going on. They're not coming from the center, but just kind of uh, isolated. It has a nice foamy head to it with kind of a uh, dark cream colored head. The bubbles in the center are fairly fine, but towards the end of the glass, uh, they are definitely larger. The lace is pretty uniform. It's not sticking to the glass. There's not a lot of sugars in this beer, which is going to point again towards a nice clean beer. I'm going to say this looks very drinkable. I'm going to give it an 8.5 for appearance. Next is aroma. A lot of pininess, as you would expect from, you know, a West Coast Brewery's Pale Ale. A little bit of malt sweetness going on there. Not too heavy, but just just enough to be there. Kind of like smelling honey. A very subtle, not too sweet honey. You know, I'm actually going to meet a blackberry in there, which is going to be like the most pretentious thing you ever hear me say for a pale ale. But yeah, I'm definitely getting some blackberry in there, which is... It's quite nice. It smells very drinkable. It smells very clean, like no sulfur on the nose, not too dank. I'm going to give aroma on this a 9.1. All right, so next up is flavor. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's very crispy. A lot of fruitiness, like I said. It's kind of a sweet, honey, berry fruitiness. But I say that 
not expecting to go out like you have like a line equals berry vice. It's nothing like that. It's just kind of the subtle, natural, sweet tones you get from this beer kind of remind me of like fruit and honey in those regards. It's funny because the bottle artwork, I can't tell if that's a hot plant or if that's supposed to be like a shock of wheat because it's like drawn. It's kind of hard to say. I'm not getting a whole lot of weediness in there, but uh, they just they describe it as still water, swaying pines, OG vibes, wait into this classic pale ale to discover an underlying complexity. You know, it's definitely true. This is a complex flavor for being very simple. Uh, let's take one more sip. You know what? Mirror Pond IPA, flavor-wise, it's, it's such a subtle pale ale. And I'll talk to this more when we get to uh, another category. But it's very easy to drink. Not too heavy in the flavor. I'm, you know, I'm just going to go ahead and give this a uh, 8 point... Give another 8.5 in the flavor. All right, then mouthfeel, the fourth category here. It's a very light mouthfeel. A little bit of sparkle to it. I would like the mouthfeel actually to water. It's got a little bit of heft to it, but it has almost an iced tea-like quality to it in that there's a lot of natural and earthy flavors going on for what is essentially the consistency of a little bit of a carbonated water. So I think that's very nice. It really goes towards the drinkability of it all. So I'm going to give mouthfeel on this a 9.2. 9.2 for being you know a pale ale of any kind. You assume hops. Very drinkable, very crushable mirror pond. 9.2 for mouthfeel. Last but not least, Stonk's Drinkability Quotient, which is our not-so-secret category we throw in every week. You know, I've kind of waxed poetic on this beer throughout my review, but this is a really good beer. This is a beer for people that I know we all have the friends that don't like beer that doesn't taste like beer. We've talked about this before. You know, Montucky Cold Snacks are great to bridge the gap between there. But if you want to take them one step further beyond that, I would say Mirror Pond is a great way to get to them introduced into craft beer or beer that doesn't taste like beer. The reason I say so is because this has the drinkability of an American lager, but I would say less carbonation, so it's not going to bloat you as much. The same ABVs, so you can consume as much as you would an American domestic. But at the same time, this is almost like the domestic equivalent of a pale ale. There's not too much going on here. It's not going to be incredibly complex for people that you know don't have super refined craft beer palettes or history it's very drinkable it's very crushable i'm gonna have to give mirror pond a strong drinkability quotient of 9.4 merely for really doing what it set out to do i'm gonna dock at a few points because i really feel this should come out in a can and i have not seen this in a can that's not to say it isn't in a can but this is the kind of beer I would love to stock up and put in a cooler and bring fishing or bring to a barbecue or bring to any kind of party. But glass bottles, I don't like bringing glass to parties, so I'm going to dock it a few points for that. You know, I'm, I'm going to bump back down. Song Strengthability Quotient of uh, 9.2 for that reason. I'm sorry. Redacted Song Strengthability Quotient. Don't get me wrong. If it's been a while, go out, get yourself a six-pack of Mirror Pond, take yourself back to your early drinking days of craft beer. And I will take you back to Chief's training camp when we come back from break. Thank you for listening to Fountain City Sports Media. 
we are back after that beer review. Now, I know one thing Armando talked about last week that I really want to get into as well is the quarterback show on Netflix. Here's the funny thing I feel like is that Netflix either does or doesn't do a documentary well. I feel like there's very little middle ground on Netflix. And I have to say from what I've seen, quarterback definitely does it well. I mean, they definitely do it well. And I'd love to sit here and tell you my opinions in the show, but I'll talk to Armando about this. I really think this is something we should both talk about in the podcast together. Maybe make it seriously, kind of like we did last dance with Michael Jordan, like a four, five, six episode uh, bonus cast on Patreon. Who knows? Speaking of which, are you following us on Patreon? Check us out at patreon.com backslash FCSM. And for the price of one cup of coffee per month, you can get access to exclusive miniseries, including the aforementioned Last Dance documentary series, Season Zero of Fountain City Sports Media, where our former co-host Kyle Neg joins us as the trio, and also Speedy and Angry, our 11-part deep dive into the Fast and Furious franchise. Fast X, I know I've kicked it down the road for the last two months, but I kid you not, like the day after we recorded Fast X is when we won this house bid. And my life has just been absolute turmoil since then. So we have the podcast. I'm still editing it. It's going to come up, I promise. But check out patreon.com backslash FCSM for all your Fountain City bonus content needs. Speaking of bonus content, we got a little bit of a bonus last year from none other than Chris Jones. I would say, let's just flash forward to Chiefs training camp right now. The two big stories of this Chiefs training camp so far have been Chris Jones and the wide receiver room. I think those are the two biggest takeaways. We're going to start with Chris Jones because I think this is probably the bigger of the two stories just in terms of like immediate impact. Let's just walk it back here. Chris Jones is entering the final year of his contract with the Chiefs. Uh, When he was given that contract, he was one of the highest paid defensive players in the NFL, one of the highest paid defensive tackles in the NFL. Uh, Aaron Donald obviously just being like the only S tier contract making over 30 million a year and with his guaranteed it's crazy but for the longest time that's because he was the only straight up S tier interior defensive lineman now that was until last year where Aaron Donald was starting to be played with a few injuries he's got a few years on Chris Jones but by and large injuries or not Chris Jones looked like the premier interior defensive tackle in the NFL last year Notching a career-high 15.5 sacks and nearly uh, beating his single-season quarterback hurry rating, Chris Jones was very impressive. Say no. Now, coming into this year, we knew it was basically a foregone conclusion that he was going to want to negotiate a new contract prior to playing out the last year of his contract because no one's going to want to hit the franchise tag and be, you know, 31 coming out of this. And then suddenly you're looking for the bag, but you're a 31-year-old defensive tackle. So Chris Jones has been tweeting about how he wants to be a chief his entire career, how he loves Kansas City, how we've adopted him, you know, hey, Chiefs Kingdom, you're looking at your defensive player of the year next year. So it seemed kind of like, you know, a foregone conclusion that Chris Jones would be staying a chief. And this was just a matter of ironing out some contract details uh, for the longest time, it seemed that Chris Jones was probably going to wait until Quinnen Williams, who was also up for a contract extension, got his bag. Now, Quinnen Williams, very respectable defensive tackle. I think a lot of people could argue is probably top five, maybe the third best defensive tackle. 
But the thing is, if we're going stepping stone tiers, it was obviously Aaron Donald, Chris Jones, and then your number three. So when Quinn and Williams earlier this month signed a four-year, $96 million contract extension, the immediate thought was, okay, so Chris Jones is going to kind of want to one-up that just a little bit. He's not going to get Aaron Donald money. But we're probably looking at something like a four-year, $100 million contract, paying him 25 a year. Maybe something that gets him 27 a year, you know, give him uh, three years, give it a certain amount of guaranteed money. But Chris Jones saw the watermark. We knew what the realistic thing was going to be, and we we're going to extend it. Now, it's starting to go a little bit longer here, and word has come out that Chris Jones' camp may potentially be looking at a deal worth $30 million a year annually. Still not Aaron Donald money. But enough that you kind of sit up and you say, "Mm, excuse me? Now, this sounds a lot to me kind of like the Tyreek Hill deal last year, which we all remember how that went down. And I do believe, if we can call our own shot, that Fountain City Sports Media sort of predicted this could have happened with Tyreek Hill. Namely, it seemed like a foregone conclusion that Tyreek Hill would play hardball, would negotiate, would eventually settle and find a number that both camps conceded on and made happy with. Until suddenly one day, Schefter tweets out, Tyreek Hill trade imminent with the Chiefs. Multiple partners should be done in the next few hours. Lo and behold, later that morning, Tyreek Hill was traded to the Miami Dolphins. Now, I'm not saying the Chris Jones situation is going to play out like that, but that does seem like a bit more of a possibility on the nuclear clock than we may have thought at the beginning of the offseason. Now, here's where the big difference is. Normally, I would say... Okay, same thing I said with Tyreek Kill. He wants way more than what the predicted probably $25 million a year was going to be. All right, thanks for playing. Bye. Not going to pay you. Not going to pay you. In this day and age, with the salary cap and Mahomes being on a big boy contract now that he's off his rookie deal, we can't afford to lock up our salary cap in three, maybe four players in this team and hamstring us across a bunch, across a bunch of different positions. The big difference being, though, When Tyreek Hill was shown the door, we talked about this in the podcast that we were kind of excited to see what would happen when Pat A didn't have a safety valve and B had to distribute the ball to a bunch of other talented receivers across the field, make him less of a one-trick pony, more unpredictable, Pat can make these guys good. The problem is, you take Chris Jones out of this equation, there really isn't a next man up. There is no defensive tackle room to kind of make the composite aggregate as good as the single person that was there. There is no every play, everybody focuses on Tyreek Hill slash Chris Jones, and everyone else can, you know, do whatever they want. So I'm a little concerned here, because if we do wind up losing Chris Jones, defensive tackles, especially those approaching 30, aren't going to net you like five picks the way that Tyreek Hill and generational game-breaking wide receiver would. So A, the return is not as good on Chris Jones. B, we don't have the players to step up into Chris Jones' shoes the way we had for Tyreek Hill. And honest to goodness, that gets me just a little bit nervous. Spagnolo's scheme, as we've mentioned, starts and stops with how much pressure the defensive line can get. And with rookie defensive end Felix Andekozama, sophomore defensive end George Karloftis, both of whom are still kind of unproven, unknown commodities, you got a bunch of kind of rotational pieces, you got some veteran players and Charles Amenahu, maybe we get Charles, uh, Carlos Dunlap back. 
but you don't have a superstar defensive tackle to set the tone for that entire line and for the pass rush. And honestly, that makes me a little nervous. Maybe all those late round picks, those fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh round defensive backs that we drafted last year aren't quite as good without Chris Jones being able to generate a pass rush on the opposing quarterback. Maybe they get picked on a little bit more. Maybe some of their small schools, small programs, small time tendencies start to come to the surface. Personally, that's not something I want to see. Also, I'm not saying pay Chris Jones. I really am not. I would love to see that number come down to closer to $27, $28 million a year. But hopefully we figure something out. I feel right now we kind of have the sword of Damocles over our head and that something bad is going to happen either way. We'll have to see which that bad thing is. So the second big story, as I was talking about, you know, last year, Tyreek Hill opened up the door for the wide receiver room. It was super cool. We loved seeing what Pat was able to do opening up that offense, getting some new faces fed, seeing some youngsters step up. Well, this year, we're going into phase two of that experiment and possibly with an even more unproven wide receiver room than we had last year. Veteran slot receiver Juju Smith-Schuster is no longer on the team, having chosen to join the Patriots in the offseason, leaving our lone veteran wide receiver as Marquez Valdez-Scantling. Okay, I guess Justin Watson's maybe been in the league probably four or five years as well, but you know he's not an impact player to that degree. I think we can all agree on that. However, this offseason, there are some exciting things a-brewing. Kadarius Toney, after showing some flashes this year, was finally going to get a full offseason to train with the Chiefs, show up and see what he can do in this system, presumably as probably a number one wide receiving option. Uh, rookie wide receiver Rashi Rice picked in the second round. A lot of hype bubbling around him and what he can do. He's a great go-up-and-get-it option, even if he's not a <clears throat> big-body wide receiver. And also, the unknown quantity that was Justin Ross. Former first-round talent out of Clemson dealing with foot and spinal issues. Seemingly derailing his career, Chiefs take an undrafted free agent flyer on him, set him on the shelf to let him heal, get some surgeries, learn the playbook. And this year, people were excited to see what he was going to do. Since training camp started, Kadarius Tony, like 20 minutes before the first practice even starts, I guess, injures his knee shagging punts. Uh, so here's my thing with that. Yes, I know what Kadarius Tony can do as a punt returner. We all saw the Super Bowl last year. We all know the dude is Dante Hall, but even shiftier and faster and crazier. It's great. The thing is, he is injury prone, and we knew this coming to this offseason. And I don't know why we make some of the special teams decisions we make. Why did we put Sky Moore at punt returner last year when he was a MAC conference player who had never caught punts in his career? Interesting choice. Kadarius Tony, yes, our most explosive punt returner, but should be utilized as more of a break-in-case-of-emergency punt returner, not an every-down punt returner, guys. And subsequently, here does he just shagging punts in, in a practice. And an OTA. So now Kadarius Tony's injury is kind of ambiguous as to how serious it is. There was talk that he might need some cleanup surgery, but not stuff that would actually keep him out uh, potentially even before week one. Will he be back? I don't know. Do we want him back for week one? I don't know. Do we want to let him heal? Yeah, probably. But most important thing, we're likely out our wide receiver one all through training camp and maybe even the first few weeks of the season. That brings us to... Justin Ross. 
Again, like Kadarius Tony, he's had some serious injuries over the last five years of his life. There is no denying that. However, the other thing I was not denying is that this could be the first time that Patrick Mahomes would have a both large-bodied and B, go-up-and-get-it wide receiver for the first time in his career. Patrick Mahomes has had a lot of short dudes to throw to out of his career. I'm talking about, remember when Byron Pringle was the biggest guy in the wide receiver room? Nicole Hardman, Tyreek Hill, Demarcus Robinson, not big dudes. It would be fantastic for him to finally have a 6-4 dynamo with great route running skills and incredible ball catching skills. Go back and watch this guy's, uh, I think it was his ah, crap, sophomore year at Clemson when they beat Alabama in the national championship game. I mean, it was like a video game. We're talking like Madden where it's like throw it in the direction of the receiver. And if they're open enough, even if the ball's nowhere near them, like the animation frames will have them catch the ball. I kid you not, that is Justin Ross. His catch abilities are incredible. It'd be fantastic to give Mahomes that big red zone target. That being said, the guy is projected to be a fringe candidate to even make the team. He's been taking first team reps. Uh, Talk has been that he's been getting the third most first team reps out of all the wide receivers, which is a good sign that they want to trust him. They want to see what he can do. But large, large in part, he is still an unknown commodity, both in what he can do at the NFL level and if he can stay healthy. That brings us to Rashi Rice, the second round draft pick out of SMU. Now it's been kind of nice. He's got he's got his you know former SMU Mustang Shane Buchel as our third string quarterback, tossing him balls in practice, getting up to speed. And Buchel, as we've seen in the preseason, he's a smart, intelligent quarterback that is able to improvise a lot like Patrick Mahomes. Rashi Rice's big thing is, although he's not the biggest wide receiver in the game, I think we. I think we gave him a generous 6-1 when it came down to brass tacks, but he does have fantastic go-up-and-get-it ability, which I'm very much looking forward to seeing if that can translate to the NFL. I know that sometimes comes at the cost of his route running, I have been told, that he kind of makes up for that poor route running with his you know tenacious going-up-and-getting-it ability. That remains to be seen. Case in point, he's still a second-round wide receiver out of what equates to a mid-major conference with a lot of money. Some other people that Chiefs are excited to see this season in wide receiver is Justin Watson. Happy to have him back as a, you know, a nice blocking wide receiver. Showed a lot of flash last year when need. But another one that people kind of have their eyes on here is actually going to be Richie James. Uh, Richie James, Kadarius Tony's former running mate as the New York Giants, uh, joined us this offseason. And although there was talk of he would be a kind of limited ceiling player, apparently he has been lighting it up and really impressing Chiefs coaches and Patrick Mahomes in training camp. Now the talk is, could this be a potential guy to be shagging punts for us? Or could this be a serious every down wide receiver threat? I know it kind of remains to be seen. Uh, With his career, he's only got just over 1,200 yards and I think seven touchdowns, something like that. So he could show up, but with the wide receiver room being as unknown and potentially thin as it is right now, he has a chance to step up and really assert himself and make himself a favorite target of Patrick Mahomes. So keep an eye out for Richie James. I think he'll be interesting. One final one I have to talk about is going to be Sky Moore. Now I go back and forth every day on Sky Moore, uh, you know, either defending him or hedging my bets on him. 
Because when it comes down to brass tacks, yes, he was a Mac second round wide receiver who kind of got picked at the end of the run of wide receivers in last year's draft. So I guess some people kind of saw him as a best of the rest. Uh, His route tree seems a little bit limited, but he does have fantastic athleticism, great burst, and seems to have really sure hands. I mean, what were they, like 12-inch frying pan hands or something like that? That being said, a lot of people last year were hard on Sky Moore being like, oh, he really didn't step up and assert himself. He didn't get a chance to and all this stuff. It's like, well, you know, he, he, he was a rookie last year. Again, a second round Mac rookie. And I think he stepped up in big moments, which is important. And I think he ultimately made the most of the targets he received at the regular season. He mostly had to step up in big games when we were losing wide receivers. I'm talking about that first Chargers game or the second Chargers game last year in San Diego. Yes, San Diego, as well as in the playoffs when we were getting banged up at wide receiver against the Bengals and in the Super Bowl against the Philadelphia Eagles. I want to give Sky Moore a full season being an every down wide receiver before I start casting judgment on this guy. Remember, we're realistically only going to get four years to see what this guy has, and this is going to be year two. So I expect a big step forward for Sky Moore. Not saying he's going to be a thousand yard receiver or anything, but depending on how we utilize him, I want to see him as more than just a McCole Hardman out of the backfield kind of gadget guy. I would love to see Sky Moore turn into a true slot receiver. He's got those big, strong legs I love talking about, he's got extremely great hands. I think he could be a reliable target across the middle, picking up those catches where Juju Smith-Schuster left a hole this offseason. So really, that's all I got for you this week. Thank you for tuning in to a solo podcast. Uh, I'm looking forward to chatting with Armando again and getting us back onto a set schedule. Oh my gosh, guys, before you know it, it's going to be week one of the preseason. So I hope you are ready for some more Chiefs coverage. We'll keep you updated here with how Chris Jones and the offseason turns out, but thank you again for listening, and we hope you have a good afternoon. We'd like to thank you for joining us today on Fountain City Sports Media. This podcast is brought to you by listener support, so consider becoming a friend of the podcast. Check out our Patreon page at patreon.com backslash FCSM to gain access to premium content including outtakes, bonus episodes, and exclusive beer reviews. Check out our website at fountaincitysportsmedia.com for more info on the podcast, social media, and of course, the goings-on in the beer industry. Special thanks to bands Carswell and Hope and Like a Tiger for providing our intro and outro themes. And as always, I'm Reese, and alongside my good friend Armando, we thank you for tuning in to Fountain City Sports Media. 